morning. As you can see, Pastor Jack isn't here. He's uh, taking his annual uh, winter vacation on the beaches of Russia. Um, they left yesterday. Actually, he's not taking a vacation. He and Greg Grandy went there to uh, minister to at the uh, seminary in Samara that uh, we support. So pray for, for him, for his trip, for Greg as they're there. They'll be there a couple of weeks. Well, as seen by our music this morning, we've officially entered the holiday season. As uh, Tim mentioned, it's December 2nd, so we can officially start singing Christmas carols. And as part of that season also includes many parades. There's parades at Thanksgiving, parades at Christmas, parades at New Year's, and actually parades that occur all through the year. And they come in many different shapes and sizes for different occasions. I did some research a little bit the last couple of weeks on parades. So for any of you parade buffs, I have a few little factoids I, I dig, dug up. Uh, one is the Marksman's Parade. It's held in Hanover, Germany every year. And this parade has the distinction of being the longest parade in the world. It's over seven and a half miles long, in fact, and has uh, 12,000 participants. The oldest parade in America is the Santa Claus Parade, held in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, this year they're celebrating their 120th anniversary of that parade. The Rose Parade isn't far behind. It began in 1890, uh, of course held in nearby Pasadena. And it is one of the most popular and, and beautiful parades uh, that there is. Uh, what's interesting, too, is I read in the uh, form that, that if you wanted to, to make a float, maybe we could do a Calvary Bible Church float next year. Uh, but on the form there, it says, you know, how much would you expect this to cost? And a float costs anywhere from a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. So uh, that, that might uh, exclude us a little bit. But that's amazing, isn't it? Three hundred grand for a pile of flowers. Um, <laughs> Then there, of course, is the famous Ninja Parade, held every year in Central California. But oddly enough, in the Ninja Parade, uh, they, the participants seem to slip through every year unnoticed. <laughs> First hour got that one quicker than you guys. <laughs> well, back in Idaho, our family uh, would often go to parades. One that we enjoyed in particular was called the, the Nightlight Parade. Um, it was held in the evening, uh, late at night, because the sun didn't go down till past 10.30 during the summers. And it had bands and police cars and floats, and the police cars had the sirens going and the, the, uh, the lights flashing. Fire engines would come through. They even had dragsters there. They'd fire up the engines. You could barely hear anything when they did it. Even some of the hot air balloons, they would take the balloon down and, and just uh, uh, carry the, uh, the basket through and then turn the, uh, the flame on. And, uh, you know, at the end of the parade, there was, uh, they even towed a jet uh, through there with lights on it. And, hey, for Idaho, that was pretty impressive. We... We had a great time at those parades. They were a great celebration. But parades are nothing new. In fact, uh, there's evidence that parades existed even back 5,000 years ago. Um, and I bring up parades this morning because the psalm we're going to look at was birthed in the context of a parade. It was set in the midst of a celebration. And that's where it finds its origins. It was a parade that was organized by King David himself. And the occasion was when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to reside in a tent that he had built for it there. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? That Indiana Jones movie. It's no ordinary box, right? Remember the, when they opened it and the, the, the melting faces and all of that? Actually, the Ark was a very special gold-plated box that the Lord had the people of Israel build, and it represented his presence. 
First Samuel 4.21 describes the ark as the glory of the Lord because God often manifested his presence over that ark. So to understand the significance, though, of King David's celebration, we need to go back about 100 years in Israel's history. That was a time when the Philistines had taken the ark of the covenant in battle, and they put it in their temple, the God, uh, temple of their god Dagon, and right after that, though, they, they noticed that people, the Lord struck them with boils. Uh, he struck them with tumors. And so they decided, we don't want this around here anymore. So they stuck the ark on a cart with two oxen and just sent it out of, out of town. Well, it ended up in a village. And in that village, there were a couple guys that saw this bright, shiny box. And so they decided, we're going to look into this thing. So they opened it up. And the Lord struck them dead and struck 50,000 people in that village dead because they had desecrated the holiness of the Lord. So you can imagine that we don't want anything to do with this. So the box, the ark, ended up in some guy named Abinadab in his house up on the hill out of the way. And there it sat for over a 100 years. A 100 years it was gone. Well, King David, as, as he ascended to the throne... He defeated the Jebusites in battle, and that's how he took Jerusalem. King David was the one that established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He then, right after that, defeated the Philistines. And in honor of those victories and how God had delivered them from their enemies, David wanted to hold a celebration. And he thought, I want to bring the ark, which represents God's presence, into the city so that we can remember and be thankful and celebrate God's reign over his people. So David had a tent built, as I mentioned before. First Chronicles 15 and 16 uh, describe these events. He gathered all Jerusalem together, and like any good parade, he assembled the musicians and the orchestra and the singers. He had the, the elders and the captains of the army leading the procession with him, and they walked before the ark of God, singing praises and joyful celebration. And that was the time, if you remember, when David was dancing in joy before the Lord and, and Michael, his wife, had despised him. So David led the ark into the city, brought it into the tent, burnt offerings were given to the Lord. And it is at that moment that David offered a poem of thanksgiving for this whole event. First Chronicles 16, 8 through 36 uh, show that whole poem. And much of that poem is contained word for word in Psalm 96. So as I read Psalm 96, I want you to picture the parade, picture the atmosphere and the environment in which these words were spoken. Psalm 96. I'll read the whole psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
Now, while many of the Psalms are prayers directed to the Lord, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of lament, or times of despair, this Psalm is written directly to us. It is written to God's people, to the saints of every generation. And as the occasion of God's victory over Israel, over Israel's enemies and the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city, David looks ahead as he sees that celebration. He's looking ahead to a future celebration, a future parade, if you will, where the, where God himself will come and will take his throne upon the earth and rule. And as David reflects on the imminent return of the king, he wants to draw our attention and our focus toward our responsibilities that we have toward God and towards others. So within this psalm, we will see six essentials to rightly honor the coming king of the universe. Six essentials to rightly honor the coming king of the universe. You see, this psalm is all about honoring God. In fact, 25 times in these 13 verses, God himself is referenced specifically. 11 times referring to the name of God, Yahweh. You'll see it in many of your translations, Lord in caps. That's his personal name, Yahweh. And 11 times in these 13 verses... His name is proclaimed. This psalm is given in God's honor. It is given to provide a message of good news that we not only need to praise God for, but that we also need to tell others. The six essentials to rightly honor the coming king of the universe, they're given in pairs in each stanza of this psalm. There are three stanzas, and each stanza contains a pair of these essentials. The first stanza in verses 1 to 6, they call us to praise and to proclaim. The second stanza in verses 7 through 10 tell us to speak, to serve, and to speak. And then the third and final stanza in verses 11 to 13 call us to exalt and expect. Let's look at the first stanza, verses 1 through 6. The tone here from the very beginning of the psalm is one of obvious celebration, right? Three times he repeats in rapid succession, sing, sing, sing. He's communicating a sense of urgency, a sense of importance, of jubilation, of celebration. And notice the singing here is not for our benefit. It's sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to Yahweh. It's not about us at all. Our singing is to be directed to him. And now there are times where we are called to sing to one another. Uh, Tim Adams has in his office uh, Colossians 3.16 on the board. That's one passage that tells us, uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But that's not the thrust here in Psalm 96. Here we're to present a voice of joyful praise to God himself. God has built an amazing instrument in our voice, has he not? When we use it from a heart of praise to the Lord, God delights in that. You realize he enjoys our singing? Psalm 22, 3 says, The Lord is enthroned upon or inhabits the praises of Israel. Psalm 100, verse 4 says that we're to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. He wants that praise as we enter his presence. Our singing from a pure and joyful heart gives God delight. It pleases him. And if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will sing. Singing will be a part of your new life in Christ. You will desire to give him praise in that manner. In fact, Scripture tells us in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 that if you're filled with the Spirit, singing will be an expression of that. It will come out of you. You won't be able to help it. 
Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, And do not be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Reflecting on who God is and on what he has done for us will produce music. It will produce singing. To rightly honor the coming king, you are called here in Psalm 96 to firstly praise him. And this injunction, it addresses our vertical relationship with the Lord. The second essential to rightly honor the king addresses a horizontal relationship. We're not only to honor him through our praise to him, but we are also to honor him by proclaiming to others about him. Look at verse 2 there. After the exuberant call to sing, we're then told at the end of verse 2, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Again, the focus is moving Godward to manward. You and I are commanded here to proclaim the good news. The Hebrew word here for declare the good news is baser. It has the uh, root meaning of bringing news, especially uh, of military encounters. And every one of its usages except one is good news or the, the messenger is intending to bring good news. The scene's often a messenger running in from the battlefield to bring news of a victory, saying to the leader or the king, the enemy's conquered. The victorious army is soon returning. The word also is used to carry the idea of a, of a herald going before the king in a victorious parade, calling out after the trumpet blast, the king is coming, coming. the victorious king is coming. And recalling the context of First Chronicles 16, that, that is the picture we have here. It's a heralding of the coming of the king. The word for good news is a theologically significant term. And those, by the way, are the longest syllables you'll hear from the sermon. Theologically significant term in the scripture. It's the same word from which we get in the New Testament gospel. In verse 2 here, David is not simply referring to God's deliverance of Israel through certain victories, either over the Jebusites or Philistines or others. But he's looking to that day when God will save Israel. His people. This is the gospel of our Lord that he is referring to. That is the whole thrust of this psalm. It's looking to God's future victory when he returns to the earth, makes things right, establishes his kingdom, and saves his people. Notice what we're to proclaim starting in verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. And this, brothers and sisters, is the centerpiece of our good news proclamation. It is a proclamation of the glory of God. And glory here comes from a word that's root ideas is to be weighty, to be heavy. It gives a sense of declaring God's impressiveness. It was used often in describing God when he visibly manifested his presence. One example is in Exodus 40, 34 and 35, where it says there, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. His glory was so amazing and so impressive and so awesome that even his servant Moses could not enter into the tent when God's presence resided over it. You remember the transfiguration, right? Jesus' face says there that his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white light. God's glory exhibits a radiance. It exhibits a splendor. It's an awesome sight to behold and experience. And that's the picture that David is giving us here. Look down at verse 6. He says there, splendor and majesty. 
are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Three of the four terms that David uses here to describe are synonyms describing splendor, radiance, glory, brilliance, great brightness. We saw a lot of them in the song we sang just a few minutes ago. Shine, Jesus, shine. That whole idea of his of his brightness, his beauty, his glory. Well, what's the message here that we're to convey? What is David's point in giving us this description and saying that we need to tell the nations of the glory of God? You are to proclaim to all how beautiful, how glorious, how magnificent, how majestic our great God is. And that he is the only one that can offer true satisfaction. He is the only one that can satisfy the longing of our souls. He's the only one that can bring hope. He's the only one deserving of our praise and our worship. In fact, in verse 4, he says, For, or indeed, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You see the focus here? Our gospel, our good news message that we proclaim is not on us, but it's on God. It's on God himself. But sadly enough, that is rarely what you hear these days. If you turn on the TV or, or look at and listen to various sermons delivered across mainstream churches in this land, oftentimes, sadly, you'll hear a man-centered gospel. Many churches whether to focus on filling the pews or, sadly enough, perhaps to fill their pockets, have moved the message to one that people want to hear, which is about them and less about God. But it has become more of what we can get out of it rather than how he can be glorified through it. I listened to a gospel sermon uh, not long ago from a large church, a large evangelical church in the Midwest, and there was no mention of a need to repent. The word didn't come up at all or the idea within his sermon at all. He did talk about sin, but it was characterized as mistakes or or those things that we've done that are keeping us from fully experiencing God's blessing. The focus of the message that he gave was not on God, but it was on how your life is not whole or not blessed unless God's a part of it. Does God want to bless us? Does he? Yes, he does. But the important point is what he blesses us with. His blessing is not in things, but it's in him. That is the blessing that he gives. We've got it all backwards. Before any can receive this blessing of God himself, they need to repent. They need to turn from their sins, seek God's forgiveness that he offers through the cross of his son and place their trust solely in Christ. But the goal of many gospel messages today simply seems to be how to get to heaven. How to live the good life. You'd think from the way that some present the gospel message that it really wouldn't matter if God was in heaven or not. Uh, He'd be a nice addition, I guess. But God isn't interested in simply populating heaven. That's not the goal of the gospel message. God wants true worshipers. He's provided a means of forgiveness so that you and I could be his children. So that you and I could know him personally for all of eternity. Jesus himself defined the essence of eternal life as its quality, not its length. John 17, 3, right? He says, this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. The great gift that God has given is not simply living forever. It's living forever with him. John Piper put it well when he said, the critical question for our generation 
and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? How do you present the gospel? Is your focus on going to heaven or on being right with the Lord of heaven? The beauty of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why heaven is so awesome. That is why it is so amazing and impressive and, and full of great blessing. Because the radiance of Christ we will see and experience. People need the Lord They need to hear of this great God and turn from their idols, from those things that they're enslaved to. This is alluded to, if you'll see that in verse 5, where the psalmist says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And David uses here in that phrase a play on word, a pun. In the original Hebrew, the word for gods here in verse 5 is Elohim, while the word for idols is Elilim. And actually that word, which is translated idol, is really uh, carries a root idea of, of worthlessness or meaninglessness. It was a derogatory term used to describe idol. The ESV points this out by translating it as, as worthless idols. And thus David is saying here, the Elohim of the peoples are not Elohim, but they're really Elilim. You see the pun there? They're worthless. They're meaningless. They're nothing. They're of no help. Those dead idols that people would bow down to in Bible times were worthless. They offered no long-term satisfaction, no comfort, no joy, no blessing. But people are no different today. Rather than statues of wood or, or stone or metal, today people turn to sex. They turn to entertainment, to drugs, to food, to sleep, to relationships, to alcohol, to power, to greed, to money, fame, fortune, acceptance, nature, and and many other things to find meaning and significance. People seek to look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They worship idols today, just like they did in David's day. And like you and me before Christ, there are billions on this earth that have been sucked into worshiping Elohim, when all the while they are really Elilim. But you and I have the answer. You can point them to the God of splendor and majesty and power, the only Savior who can satisfy, the only one, the one who created them, the one who created heaven and earth. You can point them to the glory of God. Proclaim his glory among the nations. Proclaim the fame of God to the world. And this can be done anytime and anywhere. I love the story of Paul and Silas, uh, uh, you know, as they were going about in Acts 16, proclaiming the gospel and the people had taken them and, and beaten them and hit them with rods and thrown them into prison and chained them up and shackled them. And what were they doing while they were sitting there in prison? They sang praises to the Lord. And then not long after that, God sent an earthquake, freed them from the prison, and they led the Philippian jailer to Christ. About three summers ago, my family was, uh, we go to a reunion every year with several friends uh, from college. I won't name the university because they lost yesterday. But uh, <laughs> when we gather uh, with them, we would, uh, there are a few families which are growing every year. 
Um, well, this particular year, about three years ago, we uh, were in Sacramento, and one of the activities we did together was go to a minor league baseball game. So we hopped on a public bus, and we went down to the stadium and watched the game. Well, one of the traditions that we have at these annual reunions is we sing songs together in the evening before we put the kids down. Well, in this particular evening, uh, in this particular time, when evening came, we were sitting on the bus traveling back to, to the house. So as we were riding there on this public bus jammed with people, I turned to, to one of the dads uh, next to me and I said, hey, why don't we sing here? He said, now? I said, why not? And so there we were singing about Jesus loves me, this I know, and several other songs in the midst of this bus with all these people jammed in there. You know, I, I sat back and reflected on it a minute while we were singing. That was such a neat picture to be able to be proclaiming the wonderful deeds of God from the lips of children and their parents in this public bus. Well, you don't have to sing everywhere you go, but how often are the wonderful deeds of God being spoken from your lips? How often are you telling his glory among the nations? May the Lord help all of us to praise and proclaim him often. These first two essentials to rightly honor the coming king of the universe are followed by another pair in the second stanza in verses 7 through 10. It is there the psalmist calls us to serve and to speak, to serve and to speak. Verse 9 begins in a similar way as verse 1 did with a single command repeated three times in rapid fire succession. And this time the command is to ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. David began Psalm 29 with these same phrases. And again, that repetition brings about the importance, the immediacy, the urgency, the exuberance of the command. Notice again, the Lord is the focus three times to the Lord. But just what does ascribe mean? Does it refer to those guys whose job it was to make copies in the scripture? You know, ascribe. Sorry. Couldn't pass it up. Actually, the word for ascribe simply means to give. It carries the idea of to bring or to present or to bear, usually a burden or, as in this case, a gift. And what is it that we are so emphatically called to bring to the Lord? Look at verses 7 and 8. We are to ascribe or give him glory. There's that word again. Notice how this is described in verse 8. We're to give him the glory of his name. That is, we're to honor to praise, to bless, and give it to God in a manner consistent with his name. Most translations actually translate this to glory due his name. The Net Bible, I like the way it puts it. It says, give to the Lord the splendor he deserves. We're to give God the honor or credit that is worthy of him. Listen to what Spurgeon says when he's assessing that statement. But who can do that to the full? Can all the nations of the earth put together, discharge the mighty debt? All conceivable honor is due to our creator, preserver, benefactor, and redeemer. And however much of zealous homage we may offer to him, we cannot give him more than his due. Spurgeon makes a good point here. What can we bring? What can in all the world can we bring that would give him the glory and honor due him? That would be worthy of his name. Well, David tells us in the next few lines, he gives us a few practical ways in which we can do that. We are to serve God, essentially, and serve him in two ways, as David mentions here, in our wealth and in our worship. 
The first tangible way we're commanded to give is given in verse 8, and it's through our wealth. David says there, bring an offering and come into his courts. An offering there could refer back to the meal offering that was presented in Leviticus 2 that was a, a means in which we would give a gift of, uh, people would give a gift of thanksgiving to the Lord. But the word is also used many times in Scripture to refer to a present or a tribute that one would bring to a king. It is a gift which is expected by a king and worthy of a king. Right? It's like that picture in uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, with all these people from different nations. They were coming and bringing these gifts and offerings. Well, that's the idea here. David says, bring an offering to the Lord. Come into his presence. That takes us back to the idea of giving God glory due his name. What do we bring to glorify and honor God? Consider your giving. Jim talked about it a few minutes ago. Are you bringing an offering that is worthy of the king? And I'm preaching to myself here as well. As I was meditating on this, I really had to think, am I giving what I give? Is that consistent with what he deserves? You know, if we all gave in a manner worthy of God, and I'm going to take a risk here. If we gave in a manner worthy of his name, I wonder, would would our building be paid off? Would there be twice as many missionaries supported from Calvary? Would there be no lack of people serving here? Would the needs of every single person in this body be taken care of? If we were to be giving God the the honor worthy of his name through our giving, would this building be overflowing with people that we've witnessed to and that we've invited to come? And I know there are many of you that are giving in this way. I've been so encouraged to see that the last few years, but I'm confident that there are some here that you really need to evaluate your giving. Are you giving of yourself and your resources in a manner which gives God the glory due him? And I don't want you to take this as, well, you know, there are the preachers that go, that's all they talk about is money. You know, that's not it at all. David has told us here specifically in his word, in God's word, a tangible way that you can honor God and give glory that is due him. And that is in what you give. You need to see giving not as a, a means to keep the church going or to keep missionaries out in the field or, or to get a building built. But you need to look at it the way Paul did in Philippians 4 when he said that the Philippian offering that they had given was like a fragrant aroma, acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see, God sees giving from the heart, as Jim described earlier in 2 Corinthians 8. He's pleased by that. It's acceptable. He says, yeah, that is worthy of my name. When we give in a right way, the second way you give God glory is to serve him through your worship. Right. Verse nine says to worship the Lord in holy attire, to tremble before him, all the earth. The word for worship here is literally is the picture of of being down on your face before God. It's a picture of humility. The worship God wants is not external service alone. I talked about this a couple months ago in a passage in Isaiah one. Worship is. Not external service, right? But it's service done to the Lord from a heart of love for him. Worship is essentially, it's how we live our lives daily, sacrificing before him, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about. But worship which glorifies God is not only humble before him, worship that glorifies God is also done in obedience to him. 
He says there, the description of worshiping him is in holy attire or in a holy splendor. And for the word for attire, I'm not going to crack a joke about a wheel. Uh, the word here is used elsewhere to describe angels' garments. It's also used to describe the majestic robes of a king. As one pastor has said in reflecting on this, it's not, the, it's not what is woven on our clothes on the outside, but on our hearts on the inside. Are you clothed in holiness? Ask yourself right now, how hard are you pursuing a holy life? Do you love him so much that you'd do anything to obey him? How is your attire? What sins are you entertaining? What sins are you not killing off? Those things are like large stains on your attire, and they need to be removed. Confess those sins. Starve them off and commit to do whatever it takes not to do them again. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Give God the glory due his name by serving him, not only in worship and holiness, but also in your wealth, as I mentioned a minute ago. As in the first stanza, David then moves here in the second stanza from a Godward focus to a manward emphasis. Not only are we to serve the Lord as a means to rightly honor the coming king, we are next called to speak of his rule. Look at verse 10 with me. Say among the nations, quote, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. David has been building in the psalm to this statement right here. This is the focal point of the psalm. This is its center. In the first stanza, we were called upon to proclaim the good news of God, of his salvation, to tell of his majesty, to tell of his splendor, to proclaim the gospel. Here in verse 10, we see that that message must also include telling the nations the Lord reigns. He is king. It's the central message within a group of psalms, Psalms 93 to 100. These psalms are called the kingship or royal psalms. And Psalm 96 is smack dab in the middle of them. Well, listen to the various phrases given in these psalms. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Psalm 95, 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 98, 6, with trumpets and the sounds of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. You see, the message of these psalms that have been grouped together echoes the message of Scripture, that God rules, that he reigns. And the celebratory nature of this psalm tells us this is good news. This is great news. Look with me at Isaiah 52 for a moment. I want you to see something there. Tim referenced uh, the book of Isaiah, calling it the gospel of the Old Testament. And a lot of reasons for that is Isaiah 53, right, gives us a, a clear description of the suffering servant. You remember the familiar statements made about the Messiah who would bear our griefs, who would be pierced through for our transgressions who would have the iniquity of us all fall on him. And we know that's a description of our precious Lord Jesus Christ, who did serve as an offering and a sacrifice for our sins in his body on the cross. Isaiah 53 is a, is a key passage which describes the amazing atonement that Christ the Messiah offers. But do you note the context of which these verses are given? I want you to look back in chapter 52. 
What leads to this passage on the suffering servant? What sets its stage? This passage in Isaiah 52 is addressed to, to Jews who have suffered captivity in Babylon and as such were overcome with grief and despair and distress from all the oppression that had taken place. And God wants to give them a message of hope. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely are the mountains. On the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Same word as Psalm 96, Baser, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. What is the message of good news here? What is the message of salvation that God is declaring to his people? He says, your God reigns. That is the source, the hub, the central point of God's good news. In fact, this verse in Isaiah 52, 7 is what Paul referenced later in Romans 10 in the context of the gospel and the need for preachers to preach the gospel. He points to this passage and said, that's the heart of the message. Your God reigns. And what's my point in all this? Well, the focus, again, of our message is on God. It's not on us. He's the one who rules. He's the one that deserves all the attention. He is the one whose message we bring. The message that your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, yea, the whole world needs to hear is this. God reigns. He rules. He is king. I heard a pastor tell of a missions conference that he was attending. And at the missions conference, he saw one of the displays. There was this huge poster, this massive poster, and it had a sea of faces on it. And the the caption in large letters over the poster was, Six Billion Reasons to Be a Missionary. But if you think about it, there's really only one reason to be a missionary. And that's God. It's his message we're to carry. It's his glory we're to proclaim. He is the reason we need to speak. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we aren't to have a heart for the lost. And I'm not saying that uh, a motivation to our witnessing should not be because people are going to be judged. But I just want you to remember, keep the main point in view. Whose message is it? And for whose honor are we bringing it? And his message, brothers and sisters, is good news. Is it not? It's great news. Verse 10 describes why he says later that the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He's just saying there. God is the one who's in control. Nothing will happen outside of God allowing it. All anxiety can be removed. He then says that God will judge the peoples with equity, with fairness, with justice, with integrity. We've yet to see any government do that, but God will. Our message to the world is that God rules that he is in control, and that he is the righteous judge. At this point, I have to pause here, and I have to ask you, does this God who reigns, have you submitted to his reign? Does he reign over you? Because God will not have any in his kingdom who live apart from his rule and his authority. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
I mean, the most basic, the most fundamental, the, the, the most obvious and characteristic of a genuine believer in Christ, of a Christian, is that he or she submits to the rule of King Jesus. That's fundamental. In his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, John Piper said this, The keynote in the mouth of every prophet preacher, and in ours as well, whether in Isaiah's day or Jesus' day or our day is, your God reigns. God is the king of the universe. He has absolute creator rights over this world and everyone in it. He goes on to say, Rebellion and mutiny are on all sides, however, and his authority is scorned by millions. So the Lord sends preachers, you and me, into this world to cry out that God reigns, that he will vindicate his name in great and terrible wrath. But these preachers, you and me, are also sent to cry that now, for, for now, a full and free amnesty or pardon is offered to all rebel subjects who would turn from their rebellion, who would call on him for mercy, would bow before his throne and swear allegiance to him. That amnesty is signed in the blood of his son. Where do you stand with him? So far, we have seen four of six essentials to rightly honor the king, to praise and proclaim him to serve and to speak of him. The last two are found in the final stanza in the poem, and there we are commended, we are called to exalt and expect his coming. These last verses of the poem, starting in verse 11, express a joyous event that is about to take place. In fact, so joyous, so overwhelming, that nature itself is depicted as participating in the celebration. Look at the buildup of emotion in each phrase here, starting in verse 11. Let the heavens or the skies be glad. Let the earth rejoice, express joy. Let the sea make a loud roaring sound and all that's in it. Let the field exult or be jubilant. Let the trees sing for joy, or the word there is actually make a joyful shout. And just what is it that all nature is excited about? What is it that would generate such glee, such exuberation? Well, the psalmist repeats it, for he is coming, for he is coming. I'm sure that all of you can relate to being just overwhelmed with excitement at different times in your life, an expectation of an event or a person. I remember when I was about seven years old, I lived with my grandparents because uh, my parents had uh, been divorced. And my dad would come to see me about every other weekend. Uh, but there were some times that he wasn't able to make it. And I remember this one time in particular, he hadn't been able to come out for several weeks. But he called me on a Friday afternoon and, and he told me he was on his way. Now that trip that he would take was from Oakland to Fresno, which is over a three-hour drive. But those entire three hours, I sat with my nose pressed against the window, waiting for my dad to come. Well... That's the picture that we see here, but to a much greater extent. This is more than just one little boy waiting for his dad. This is all of creation in eager anticipation with nose pressed against the window, waiting for the coming of the king, waiting for his return, eager to see him. But then in verse 13, we see a peculiar statement. Look at the reason for the excitement, for he is coming to judge the earth. What? Excitement over judgment? What is that about? Well, turn to Luke 3. It's a passage we covered, uh, I think, back in uh, 
a long time ago. Um, actually, I think back in 05. Luke 3. Luke 3 is a passage that, uh, where John the Baptist, a narrative regarding him and his preaching. It talks about his preaching being a, uh, a message of repentance and a baptism of forgiveness for salvation. And there, his message centered upon repentance. It's centered upon judgment. Look at verse 9. Luke 3, 9. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fruit there being fruit of repentance. That's a picture of hell. Then he describes right after that some specific uh, ways, uh, examples that what true repentance looked like. And the people begin to wonder, is this the Messiah? He preaches with such power. Well, John, in response to that, says, As for me, verse 16, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, as in verse 9, John is describing here a picture of hell, a picture of those who reject God, of the wicked, like chaff being burned. It's pretty graphic. And he's saying the Messiah will judge the unrepentant by sending them there. And then look at verse 18. Right after these statements of judgment, Luke says, So, with many exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. How is that good news? Let's look at one more text. Revelation 14. Revelation 14 is another gospel presentation. And in fact, it is the last gospel presentation given on planet Earth. And it's given by a unique preacher. It's an angel who's flying in the sky, proclaiming to the whole earth this message, this gospel. Look with me at Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying him in heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, listen to his message, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Notice part of the content of this eternal gospel, this eternal message of good news includes the statement, the hour of his judgment has come. Again, we've got to ask, how is judgment good news? Why would Luke call John's message of judgment the gospel? Why would the angel include in his eternal message, his eternal gospel message, that the hour of judgment has come? Why does all creation in Psalm 96 break out in great joy and exuberation, anticipating God's coming to judge the earth, knowing that part of that judgment includes punishment of those who've rejected God? Why is that? Because that is the day God will be honored as he deserves. That is the day that all atrocities committed in human history, all the rapes and the tortures, the murders, the genocides, the molestations, all of the terrible, terrible evils that have been committed on this earth, they'll be dealt with. When God returns, he's going to make it right. 
He's going to judge the world in righteousness, in faithfulness, in justice. He will judge his enemies and he will save his friends. He will reign and he will rightly be honored. He will be seen as God, as he should be. All the world will see it, not like it is now. But God will make his presence clear to all and he will reign. He will reign. This is great news. I mean, picture yourself. Uh, what if you were POW in Germany in World War II, living among the, the squalor, the malnutrition, the sickness, the disease, the death? And what if news reached you secretly that there was a massive Allied invasion large enough that was going to end the war? Would that not be good news? Would you not wait in eager anticipation of your coming victors to free you from the hell that you were in? Would you not share that message with every other POW in that camp? Would it not be a message of great news? Why? Because your enemy will be defeated. You will be freed. You will be saved from that that squalor, that prison. Well, Psalm 96 declares the good news of the Lord's return to defeat his enemies. Sin and Satan were defeated at the cross. Jesus Christ is coming back to fully finish the job. That is good news. Sin has been defeated. It will be eradicated. All who have rejected God will be judged. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more sin. We will see God as he is. We will know him more deeply than we have ever known him. We will experience joy we have never experienced When God comes back. The New Testament tells us who this one in Psalm 96 is who's going to come back to judge the earth. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said explicitly and exactly in Acts 17. He says there to the Athenians on Mars Hill, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Christ is so important because the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us without a doubt that he is the one that's going to be returning to set up his kingdom. Revelation 19 gives us a picture of this event. And I'd like you to, if you want, close your eyes. And I just want you to picture this scene. I'm going to read it to you from Revelation 19. I want you to picture yourself there. If you know Jesus Christ, you will be there. Listen. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a great white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath, fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 96 is looking forward to that day. Do you have the same level and excitement and desire 
to see the Lord Jesus return? Is your nose flat from being pressed against the window, waiting? Are you anxious to see him reign and for all the world to honor him as he deserves? Then rightly honor the coming king by praising and proclaiming him, by serving and speaking of him, by exalting and expecting him. There are many other POWs that God wishes to free when he returns. And we need to tell them this message. We don't know who they are, so we need to tell everybody. This message needs to go out to all the earth. We need to tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ, because that is the heart of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if, you know, a simple way to remember what you need to tell someone in presenting the gospel is in his name and titles, Lord Jesus Christ. The whole gospel is summed up in those three words. Lord tells us he is God. He is the one and only one worthy to receive worship. Jesus, from the word Yeshua, Savior, he is the only one that can forgive our sins and offer salvation. If one would seek his mercy, seek his forgiveness that he has given on the cross. In fact, his death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for sin. There is no other. Any who rely on Christ's payment alone, God will save. They will not suffer judgment when he returns. And Christ, that's an official title. It comes from the word Mashiach, anointed one, the Messiah, the king, the coming king who we've been reading about, who's going to return and to establish his kingdom on earth. He demands our allegiance. Well, the Bible ends in Revelation 22 with the same great anticipation that we see at the end of Psalm 96. It is there that Jesus tells John at the end of that chapter, at the end of the Bible, when he says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And remember John's reply? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's repeat John's hope together. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, forgive me, forgive us for not anticipating your return with the excitement and joy that you desire. Lord, help us to have the same attitude as we see here in Psalm 96 of waiting in anticipation for your return, for your coming. Lord, help us to preach a message, the gospel that is centered on you, centered on our Lord, our Savior, our King, and the message of hope that He brings and the offer of freedom, forgiveness that He gives. Thank You, Lord Jesus Christ, for humbling Yourself. And we celebrate that coming this month and just are so appreciative and thankful for it. God, may You work on the hearts of any here who do not have a relationship with the Savior. Draw them to Yourself. Help us, Lord, to search for those other POWs and tell them the message. In Jesus' name, amen.